0: Listener production. So the rise of cybercrime and technology has brought with it the ability to manipulate our understanding of the news. So all the time we're seeing news articles and we really don't know whether it's fake news, real news. We even have presidents like Trump stating that factual news is fake. So the public really don't have much of an understanding of what they should believe. I mean, I myself try and help some of the uh, people that I know on my social media when they repost news that I've done my research on and I 100% know to be false. But these things spread huge amounts of uh, fear in our community, things from racial hate to disliking of certain communities and mistrust in government. It's all basically driving us apart, which is essentially the aim of uh, the individuals perpetrating this news. I mean, some examples, just uh, really obvious ones where people are sending uh, alerts on Facebook saying there's a new virus out here and we need to download this software to protect ourselves from it. A lot of the time, written by a criminal and that particular piece of software is actually the malware you're you're scared of protecting yourself from and and the reason why you're downloading this antivirus software. So particularly for non-technical people, it becomes an absolute minefield trying to navigate what's real and what's not. I've got Fergus Brooks here from, or formerly I should say, from Aeon, and uh, he's got some really good insight into this particular field and some interesting conspiracy
1: theories as well. Thanks, Bastian. I think it's not necessarily a conspiracy theory. I think we've pretty much gathered it's fact, but um, there has been manipulation of Facebook and other social media in order to impact elections. And that's interesting with federal elections coming up in both the US and Australia to see how Facebook will handle that and Twitter will handle that, etc. There was also the cyber analytica issue, whereby a company had been, you know, harvesting information about people from their Facebook that they really shouldn't have, and then selling that information on to other individuals. And we've seen this and they've been very public. And Facebook since come out and said, oh... Now we're really focusing on privacy, and I think, you know, I think we all agree that it's too late now because we've had our Facebook accounts for 10 years and they've got 10 years' worth of information that they've lost. And that's not so much a conspiracy theory as an actual fact, but it still was theorised on for a long time earlier uh, before it all sort of came out and bubbled to the surface. And there's not a conversation that Mark Zuckerberg has with the media where he doesn't talk about their focus on privacy. So we'll see.
0: Very true, I mean, another conspiracy theory we could touch on as well, everyone was fascinated with the disappearance of uh, MH370. I mean, how a modern-day jetliner can literally just go missing out of uh, airspace with all the radar, the communication systems, the satellite communication systems, the onboard computers is pretty mind-boggling, really, in this day and age. And uh, obviously that raised the question... Was it a cyber attack? Was it a manipulation of the airline by a a national body? Lots of questions there. I don't think that anyone really to this date knows 100% what actually happened there. I mean, you can take the common sense approach or you can go right off onto the far right-hand side and consider the plane was uh, attacked. Uh, I mean, we know that the planes can be hacked. We saw the security researcher... Uh, back a number of years ago in 2015, that repeatedly warned the FBI that it was possible to hack the infotainment system on the aircraft to take control of the uh, command system of an aircraft. And after he hadn't been uh, listened to for some time, he basically boarded an American Airlines flight, sorry, United Airlines flight, used a USB sticks, some hard drives, and a laptop to hack the aircraft and issued a climb command and also a turn command, altering the uh, the trajectory of the aircraft. Now, ultimately, he got sent to jail, but <laughs> realistically, he, he tried to do the right thing. He warned the FBI many times, and he believes he did it in a safe manner, but ultimately, he went to jail because any security researcher shouldn't really put the lives of uh, hundreds of people at risk trying to prove a hack. But it begs the question, why wasn't he listened to? Why in the world are the information and entertainment systems on aircraft connected to the command system. It's, uh, I
1: would disconnect it, wouldn't you, Fergus? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're seeing a couple of things here. I was on a flight the other day where there's Wi-Fi in the cabin. It's not very fast. Very slow Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. It's not very fast, but you have those systems that use your own that use your own devices, um, and you connect via Wi-Fi to the entertainment system. So you see that on a lot of airlines now, where they don't have screens anymore. They're depending on you to use your own screens. And those devices can be loaded up with whatever you want. They're your devices. So what you're looking at is you're looking at an environment up in the sky where if it's not completely secure we're going to have those kind of issues coming up and it's a bit extreme that he had to do it that way um and also he paid the price for it you know in terms of doing that the other thing that we're seeing and this has been happening for about six or seven years uh things like the dreamliner uh the airbus a380 have automated systems in there in their which are wi-fi which enable the machine as soon as it comes into land to say how much fuel it needs to the fuel tankers, and uh, any maintenance might mean anything that it's picked up with its con- computer systems that uh, could be problems. And let's look at a conspiracy theory on this one, is that what if a, a terror group or just someone who wants to see the world burn manages to connect into that and and uh, thereby the maintenance does is not correct. They don't put enough fuel in the tank. There's all these sort of things that could happen. But I also agree with Bastion that the, the question about um, MH370 still remains. Where is it? What happened to it? We know it crashed, but how it crashed and why it crashed with a perfectly competent pilot on board, um, and as you said, th- there's so many automated systems that talk to the towers, they just disappeared.
0: I reckon it fell out of the sky due to a cabin fire. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon the pilot crashed it into the water on purpose. I mean, they had a spade of those. But uh, it's just the failure of the systems, the way the the cascading failure of the systems within MH370. To me, uh, the documentary that I've watched kind of makes sense with the fire. I mean, the pilot would have to take so many actions to turn off the satellite systems, the onboard computer systems, the communication systems, the... I can't remember the name of it, but the transponder system, essentially. You would think that someone would notice this happening. And it's kind of logical, a progression of a fire moving through these systems. But you disagree, folks.
1: I... Look, I don't know. We could speculate on this for days and days. Well, I I think
0: it really brings home the fact that everything is connected using technology these days and technology is susceptible to cybercrime. Cyberterrorism has a much easier role today to play to affect these systems. And if we look at uh, the Ukraine power hack by Russia, they essentially used an email phishing campaign, or email spear phishing campaign to gain control of the corporate networks. They then gained control of the SCADA networks. And, and what a SCADA network is, is a very simple signal system that allows you to essentially turn things on and off, whether it be a valve or an electrical system or a switch or a breaker. And uh, yeah, they, they managed to take control of the Ukraine power systems and shut off power for a considerable amount of time. Now, these SCADA systems exist all over the place if we use... Australia's example, our gas is controlled by skater systems, our electrical systems that power our houses, our computers, our heaters, our stovetops are all connected to skater systems. And a lot of the time, uh, these systems aren't particularly well secured. We ourselves have experience hacking skater systems for organisations, and I think we've covered off before we have a 100% uh, success record. So I mean, we are pretty good at what we do, but so are the cyber criminals out there. And the cyber terrorists have an equal skill set. And it's a pretty scary prospect that all these systems can be so easily manipulated, changed, hacked, breached into. A a new hack came out uh, or a new tool came out this week from Kevin Mitnick, a, a security researcher essentially called USB Ninja. Now, what this is, is a, looks exactly the same as any other USB cable that you would charge your phone with, that you would connect your laptop with. It's got many different variants from USB-C to micro USB, and it just looks such like a normal cable. These things have already been sold online, so you innocently plug in this cable to your computer, and it instantly gives a backdoor into your computer and allows the attacker 100% access to your system. A fully patched Windows 10 environment. A fully patched uh, Mac OS X environment has no solution for this hack at the moment. So, yeah, be careful of uh, what cables you use. And particularly, a warning that I would give is uh, think twice when using, uh, at foreign airports specifically, the free phone chargers, the sockets. They have the ability to pull the contacts out of your phone. They have the ability to backdoor software into your laptops. And given just how innocent these devices look, start looking around you right now. You can probably see a USB stick in front of you. Is it malicious? Is it bad USB? Is it USB ninja? Uh, yeah, pretty scary stuff.
1: I think, I think also um, we, we now have, it's become so ubiquitous that we now in Sydney have on the ferries, and I catch ferry every day, uh, at the front we've got two charging stations at the front of the ferry, you know. And um, I don't know if those charging stations were put there by, by Sydney ferries. I don't know if they were tested. I don't know if people can replace the cables but they get used all the time for people who are either coming home on the ferry and have no charge or getting to work on the ferry with no charge because that'll give them a little bit of extra charge. Well, everyone has so
0: much capability these days. You can go and buy a 3D printer for around 1500 Australian dollars and print something that will fit and look 100% customised for Sydney ferries or the airport. I mean, look at all the ATMs around the place uh, criminals for a long time now have been 3d printing devices that clip over the card slot where your ATM, where you get money, they clip it over. It looks 100% normal, looks legit, looks shiny. You slip your card through there and they have all your details. They happen to put a camera on that device as well. And they watch you put your pin in.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> I don't know how this goes as, as conspiracy theories, but what I think we'll see in the upcoming elections, I think we're going to see the federal election in the US and the federal election in Australia, I think we're going to see a lot of very interesting aspects to people trying to manipulate votes, et cetera. And I, I think that's been proven by the Trump election, but also we'll see whether or not that can apply to the Australian election uh, because people tend to be disillusioned and also you'll have corporate interests behind so potentially corporate interests and corporate sponsorship in uh and see whether or not they can influence the election and also the fact that um sometimes criminals sponsor the corporates and the corporates have their favorite politicians that they support so there's a whole world of it going on um, also there's online voting that kind of stuff
0: So looking at how a cyber terrorist might influence an election, think about when you're using any of your internet connected devices, and we've all done it, Uh, you know, we're looking at buying a new car, we happen to be, you know, searching about Mazda, we've gone to a few different Mazda websites, and all of a sudden, every single website that you go to, the advertisement seems to be about what you were just searching for. Now, that's using cookies. But we as humans generate so much content that can be used or stolen or tar- used to target individuals to push them into certain actions. So, for example, you know we've got these devices like the Google Home and Alexa that are listening to everything we say, and they are basically listening for a keyword, "Hey Google" or "Alexa." But that means they're recording constantly. Now, I'm not saying that those two devices are actually being used maliciously but it definitely begs the question can they be used to understand who you are as a person be used to basically build a map of who I am Bastian Treptow as a person and pretty quickly say if we look at it from election you could probably get a fair idea of which way I'm going to vote people lean left people lean right in Australia we have quite a centralized uh, political system you can you can basically cause fear in individuals you know, whether that be fear of terrorism. So then you might skew your vote in a certain way. Whether that be fear of losing negative gearing on properties. Now, there's been lots of fake news about negative gearing. There's been lots of fake news about terrorism. And that tends to skew people. I've uh, had conversations with people, good people that I went to school with, that I never would have considered to be racist. But after so much fake news... And after so much information that they perceive to be real, they're on the bandwagon ready to vote for someone like Pauline Hansen because they're, they're scared that their life is going to be changed. Now, that's just a, an example of how news and the media and cyber terrorism can be used to gather content about an individual and then suggestively help them down the path of voting for a particular
1: individual or party. And in the case of Cyber Analytica, they were paying for ads and And Facebook has the capability to to target the ads towards your behaviours. So it's no wonder that people are falling for it because they see it there, they think it's news, they think it's real news, they think it's um just everyone on Facebook is seeing the same news as opposed to just things that are specifically targeting me. And I mean that's that's the sort of the life cycle isn't it, Bastion, that we discovered when we discovered that Cyber Analytica had been doing this, not just Cyber Analytica or other companies, all because Facebook allowed them to by opening up, what was it, it was for apps, wasn't it? It was for Farmville and stuff.
0: Mm. Even a more recent example, I had a friend of mine blanket all her, her social media with, we absolutely cannot let Labor get into government because they're going to charge us when we die and our children won't get... The money in it's a death tax. And if you actually read into this, you know, the, the, the headline of the article is very misleading and you read into it and essentially it's been manipulated and fake news and is that someone trying to push votes towards Liberal? That's, that's um, scarier than what we talk about, <laughs> if you think about it. So I guess it really begs the question, how much control do cyber terrorists actually have are they sponsored by parties? Are they sponsored by nations? Are they sponsored by government? Or are they just local criminals? It's very hard to know. And the answer is probably it's a mixture of all of them. But we live in a time now that cyber terrorists have way too much control over our actions. And a lot of it is fear-mongering and pushing us down a certain road because we all want to feel safe. We all want to feel that if our reality will continue along as it will, but uh, obviously when we're confronted with fear or a reality that we don't like, the natural reaction is anger and it creates an action and that action can be exactly what these guys want you to do.
1: Yeah, and I just wanted to touch quickly on on blockchain uh, and other cryptocurrencies like Monero and that kind of stuff. So the thing with the the blockchain is many people have been claiming that it's not secure, Um, it's not secure technology. That's incorrect. The blockchain is actually inherently designed to be secure. But uh, where we've seen problems with it have not been in the blockchains themselves. It's been in the administration of the blockchains. So I think people need to understand that. But one thing that I don't think a lot of people gather is that, and this is again not a conspiracy, this is actually happening, is that people are using cryptocurrency and blockchain in order to support organised crime and cyber terrorism. So that's how money is getting in untraceably and it makes it incredibly difficult. And I've got uh, a couple of former colleagues at the FBI. It makes it incredibly difficult to track uh, this stuff back to its source. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a, um, a lack of capability for law enforcement to get on top of this, supported by things like untraceable cryptocurrency and that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of crime, Uh, A long time ago, let's say 10 years ago, if you perpetrated a crime that ended up with a significant amount of money in your possession, it was a reasonably complex task to either create fake IDs and open up bank accounts and move funds around, whereas today you can uh, essentially transfer digital cash in the form of US dollars or Australian dollars straight into something like Monero. So for a criminal, it's far easier to gain cyber access to an environment, breach into the banking systems of a business, an organisation or an individual, and then use a website to transfer funds into Monero. So Monero is untraceable. Obviously, everyone's heard of Bitcoin. It's very similar, but it's just basically using a stack that is not traceable. Similar to, say, the old school uh, numbered Swiss bank accounts. We all wish we had one.
1: Yeah, and I think to to go back to what you were saying about... um sort of Internet of Things and those kind of technologies and, and SCADA systems in particular. Um, so I refer to SCADA as, as, as one of a family of industrial control systems. And this has been a theory of the IT security industry for a long time now, that at some stage we're going to see a flip from the focus on uh, financial crime to uh, to more, still can be financial, but more towards looking at these these pretty stupid systems um, that can be infected. We saw that with the Ukraine. Um, something called Stuxnet is, was responsible for that. So there's a theory that um, these t- kind of attacks are going to increase and increase quite dramatically uh, because there's not a level of security on these on these systems. Now, the scary thing about this is that these are our critical systems. Bastion mentioned gas, electricity, um, imagine someone can get in, and I've heard a story about this actually happening in Australia. Um, someone gets into a, um, a dam and opens up the sluice gates, uh, and that was, that was due to a bad password on post-it note. But still, these systems are increasingly becoming connected, and I don't know that we're necessarily... Um, T- taking as much consideration into, into the security of these new systems, that are, of existing systems that are being connected up. The other thing that does happen, and I've seen it, is that engineers who typically look after these systems, not IT, they will say, well, it's on a different network to our internet connected uh, infrastructure. Not true. Uh, in a lot of cases, that's definitely not true. So the same worms and viruses that can impact or worms and viruses that can impact a corporate network, and we see it all the time, could potentially take down the infrastructure or there could be an excortion demand to take down this other critical infrastructure that's not being considered by IT so much.
0: A reality of working in the cyber research field is we're constantly exposed to these vulnerabilities that exist, these exploits that exist, and it's often fun. And I'd say that nearly everyone in the industry has thought about their perfect cybercrime. It would be uh, non-human to, to not think about it every now and again. And I tell the junior interns that join CTRL group that, sure, you're going to think about these things, and there's no way to prevent that. But there's a lot more money to be made by being on the good side, and we call that the white hat side of uh, cybercrime, which is, the security researchers that work tirelessly every day to find these exploits and create software or patches or process to prevent them from happening. But if you were to create the perfect crime, you'd be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. And luckily for 99.99% of us, we don't uh, go down that path. But if I were to be asked the perfect crime and for some reason we needed to unlock millions of dollars very quickly, look, there are so many businesses out there that have invoices going out of their environment on the day. Uh, I'm I'm personally aware of a few companies that process something like 90,000 invoices a day in the order of millions so hundreds of millions going in and out of their bank accounts every day. The security posture that is protecting these procurement systems is pretty poor and we do a lot of work at CTRL Group to help these organisations harden and fortify... Their banking and payment systems, particularly their invoicing and procurement systems, to prevent this kind of fraud happening. But the truth of it is, it is very easy to infiltrate a network via an email phishing attack or even a voice phishing attack or a device attack like the USB Ninja cable or a keylogger and basically change bank account numbers and redirect funds to either something like a, a cryptocurrency like Monero you could walk away with millions of dollars overnight. If you were clever enough, you could do this in such a way that would be basically untraceable by today's task force of police and FBI and, and the global community trying to prevent these things. So that's where we are today. We need to move away from these things. We need to actually, instead of thinking of cryptocurrency and blockchain as a negative thing, we need to actually use these technologies and systems to secure the process end-to-end to make it far more difficult for a cyber criminal or a cyber terrorist to steal these funds. But for me, the perfect cyber crime right now in this day and age, 2019, would be some kind of banking uh, man-in-the-middle attack to redirect funds into a cryptocurrency of some kind.
1: Yeah, and I completely agree with that. I think there's a couple of things that you that you say there, and we've seen them, and I've seen these. You know, I've seen insurance claims for these exact same things. Um, and... Um, Yeah, coming through the vulnerability chain, looking for zero-hour vulnerabilities and exploiting them quickly. By zero-hour, I mean something that's not known by firewalls or antivirus as of yet and hasn't had time to be be covered up. But where you're exactly right, Bastian, and we're starting to see this adoption, a lot of companies are testing it, is using the blockchain to secure things that can be stolen. A good example of that is healthcare records. You can use the blockchain as healthier because it's a distributed ledger system. And what that means is that you can update the ledger as changes get made and it still remains secure without you building this big, huge amount of paper, et cetera, that can get into trouble. So I think, you know, adaption on our part, you know, sort of goes to what organizations can do. Individuals can p- potentially stop being so skeptical about um, blockchain and cryptocurrency, but, um, you know, it's established now. And then, testing out the blockchain, testing out the, doing thorough testing of these new technologies to make sure that they're going to actually work and make sure they're administered properly is a, is another critical sort of direction forward. Exactly. So you touched on their zero-hour vulnerabilities. Traditionally,
0: these were code snippets, uh, software that was written by a hacker or a cyber terrorist to infiltrate a system. And Up until fairly recently, there was no real way of preventing these things from happening other than one poor organisation or individual experienced uh, some kind of malicious action and then research companies like Symantec or the CVE database would then catalogue what happened, understand the code and send out a virus update or a firewall update that would not enable this particular code to work anymore. But we now have technologies that work in a different way. We look at what is normal behavior on a network and we look at what is normal file usage on a network. We look at what is normal data behavior on a network and once you have a thorough understanding of what is normal, it's pretty easy to see the sore thumb sticking out of some strange code packet doing some strange things on a device and we call that uh, user behavior analytics, we call that network behavior analytics and it's essentially using machine learning and algorithms to look at what the norm is, and then using computer processing power to understand what's not normal and stopping those processes. So we do now have a way to protect against zero-hour vulnerabilities, but unfortunately organizations are either not deploying these agents or not taking cybercrime seriously, and they're still relying on that antivirus and the firewall to protect them, which isn't going to cut the mustard these days. News is just thrown at us left, right and centre across multiple devices at work, at home, on TV, on your phone, on your mobile, on your IoT devices at home like your Google Homes and your Alexas. What I would really suggest that everyone do, when you get that emotional reaction of some piece of news, don't just read it, ingest it, believe it and incite some kind of emotional response. That's what the cyber terrorists want you to do. Research it. Instead of hitting that share button and sending it to every friend you know, that is exactly what they want you to do. Spend 30 seconds, open up Google, open up Wikipedia, which obviously are also not 100% factual, but do a little bit of research. Just 30 seconds or to do it. Is this information true? Is the source reliable? Should I really be sharing this? And once you've done that little piece of research, sure, by all means, go and share it if you believe it to be important. But right now, everyone is just reading everything. They believe it to be true. They share it. And it just acts like a massive amplifier for these criminals to blast out whatever message they want to manipulate us as humans. So the message I really want to stress here is do a little bit of research, think twice before sharing, and hopefully we can all live in a better, safer world. Cyber Hacker was brought to you by CTRL Group. Presented by me, Bastian Treptel. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Our very own Stephen Williams from CTRL Group. And a special thank you to Fergus Brooks. Hacking is real. People and organisations are being taken down every day. If you'd like some professional advice and assistance, go online to ctrlgroup.com.au and we'll help you.
1: Listener.